Well, we are in a series in the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to what really on initial read seems like a minor, if not almost uh, forgettable story. But I think as we will see, I think Luke connects the story of two female disciples to a similar temptation at work with last week's passage about the lawyer, the Pharisee, testing Jesus and the resulting story of the Good Samaritan. So this week we're in Luke chapter 10. We're going to pick it up with verse 38. This is a story of Martha and Mary. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this short little passage that teaches so much about what it is to be your disciple and really how good you are to us. We thank you for how you delight in us, how you have refused to let us go, how you pursue us so fervently. I thank you for everyone here. I pray your blessings on them, and I pray that you would give us all eyes to see and ears to hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name, through the Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> well, last week we looked at the famous interaction between a Pharisee, a lawyer, uh, and, and Jesus, where the Pharisee tested Jesus by asking him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And to put Jesus to the test is, as both Satan had done to Jesus earlier in the Gospel of Luke, and as Israel had done after leaving Egypt in the Exodus, well, it was to call God's goodness into question in whether God was trustworthy and really had his people's best interest at heart. And so to ask the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is not really a, nonsense, a nonsensical question. I mean, you can't do anything to inherit something. Inheritances are always given, not earned. It calls into question God's goodness, as in, the Pharisee did not believe God had freely given him life. There's something else the Pharisee must do in order to get it from God. And Jesus' response, as it so often is, was not actually to answer him, but to ask a question. What does the law say? How, how do you read it? And the Pharisee quotes from Deuteronomy 6, essentially, love the Lord your God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself, which is virtually the same way that Jesus summarizes the law in his own teaching. The summary of the law is found in, in Deuteronomy 6, where he, he quotes is, it's not the grounds for getting eternal life. That is, keeping the law is not the means for obtaining life from God. No, like Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, keeping the law is a person's response to God's love. This is what it looks like when someone responds to his love, when someone already belongs to God. It's just like how marriages work. You know, faithfulness to wedding vows are not what a person does in order to have the right to get married. I mean, that sort of thinking doesn't even make sense. 
No, keeping wedding vows, which is another way of saying keeping the laws of the marriage, are what people do after they have pledged faithfulness to each other. We keep faith in response to and out of love for the other person, and they are, in fact, the laws of the marriage. And the establishment of relationship comes first, and the law follows that, and so it is with God to his people. God first, out of his love, saves his people. And then, like vows at a wedding, sets the parameters of the relationship of the marriage. This is how we will live together. But the lawyer, despite being an expert in the scriptures, rejects that. Because he does not see God's kindness. He, he thinks he must use the law as a means for obtaining life from God, who in some sense must be paid. But the man is a lawyer, so he does understand just how difficult it is to keep the law. So he, he needs to narrow the law. He needs to lower the standard. So he asks a follow-up question, and who is my neighbor? It's like when Christians ask, how far is too far? Where is the line so that I can go just right up to that line without crossing it? And that's just another way of saying, you know what, I really want to sin. I just don't want to get punished for it. So how much sin can I get away with before I've broken the laws of God? It's like asking how much violence I can get away with before it becomes murder. Think about that. What if the guy is only mostly dead after I beat him? And what if he doesn't even report it? Does it even count? I don't think so. It's not really that bad until it becomes an actual murderer. You see how this works. Like the Pharisee in his question, who is my neighbor, to be in that mindset is to already have rejected God and embraced sin. Now, Jesus does not answer the Pharisee's question about who is my neighbor, but instead gives what would have been to the Pharisee the shocking story of the Good Samaritan. The story is intended to show really just how bankrupt the Pharisee, despite all his knowledge, how bankrupt the Pharisee and really the whole of Israel's leaders are. And in Jesus' story, the Pharisee is actually the man left half dead. That's who he's supposed to identify as he hears the story from Jesus. The Pharisee is the man left half dead on the side of the road. And Jesus is the good Samaritan, the one who is moved by compassion to atone and to heal and to restore what the man lost to robbers. Jesus then says, of these three, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan, which one proved to be a neighbor? So he never asked the question, who is my neighbor? He asked, who is a good neighbor? And the key difference between the three men was, was not status within Israel or even proximity to things like the temple or the law. No, no, no. Rightly kept. The issue always comes from the heart. And what few people realize is that the law is never an issue of strict obedience, as if just do this checklist and this is what it works. It's always, if rightly ordered, an issue of the heart. It comes from a sincere love for God. I mean, that's commandments one through four. A sincere love for God, and from that love for God, compassion for our neighbors, who are also made in God's image, follow out. That's the next six commandments that flow from that. So Jesus, the Son of God, comes 
God come in the flesh who had shown compassion to arguably thousands of people at this point in his ministry, something the Pharisee had surely witnessed. That's why he's testing Jesus. Well, Jesus was offering life forever to this Pharisee right there in the Good Samaritan. And his message was simple, yet it's incredibly powerful and still very much the same today. God is full of loving kindness. People call that into question all the time. But God is full of loving kindness. He has offered to bind your wounds and restore you to himself. So you don't have to distrust him wondering if he really would be kind to you. The same things the Pharisee had seen Jesus do for thousands of people was on offer to him too. Or, if not, he could continue to reject God even as he looked for ways to buy life off of him and he could follow in the path of the priest and the Levite who clearly did not love God or neighbor because they had zero compassion. Well, Luke does not tell us what happened to the Pharisee. He intentionally leaves that question, I think, hanging, perhaps inviting us as readers to identify with that, the Pharisee and put ourselves in that position. And instead, he moves on to, Luke moves on to what, on first read, seems like a totally unrelated story, almost like a flyby. Like, we can just skip this and move on to what's really good with the Lord's Prayer, which we'll do next week. Even so, pick it up with verse 38. Verse 38 tells us that after that event with the story of the Good Samaritan, the large group of people following Jesus entered a village. And it was a large group at this point, probably hundreds of people. And we know from the other gospel accounts that this was actually Bethany, not far from Jerusalem. And so in terms of chronology and geography, Jesus has moved a fairly long distance uh, from Samaria, which that's where he was in chapter 9, and now is close to Jerusalem in Judea, and that's in chapter 10, where we are. And in Bethany, a woman named Martha received Jesus into her house. And this is the same Martha and her sister Mary from John chapter 11, famously, whose brother Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus. And if you think back to the first missionary journey of the 12 in chapter 9, and again with the sending out of the 70 in the first part of chapter 10, receiving Jesus into a person's home is an incredibly important action. In fact, it is, is rife, full of, of, of symbolism. Uh, as Jesus teaches in chapters 9 and 10, by showing hospitality to Jesus and his disciples, the kingdom of God has come near to that place. That means it's shown up. They have received the king and his, his kingdom. It's an indication that Martha and Mary have believed the word about Jesus, that he is Israel's promised Messiah, and so they have rightly welcomed him. They've welcomed the king into their home. And it's like what Jesus says to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Or it's like Lady Wisdom in the book of Proverbs. She stands in the marketplace and in the, the common streets offering wisdom and life to whoever wants it. So humanity did not go looking for God. God went looking for humanity, calling out to his people, offering life. Now, the opposite of this, the refusal to receive Jesus, as Jesus warned the towns of 
uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum in chapter 10, towns that had witnessed Jesus do tremendous things, heard his preaching, seen, they saw his miracles and the healings and the exorcisms, but they did not receive Jesus. Well, it's really no different than the Pharisee putting Jesus to the test. And as Jesus warned, even wicked cities like Sodom, had they witnessed what these other towns had witnessed, they would have turned. That's how bad it is that Capernaum, among other places, did not receive Jesus. And what is unique about our passage is that it is a woman receiving Jesus into her home. Now, we really don't know anything of her domestic situation. Is she married? Is she widowed? Um, we know that she's there with, with her sister Mary. She has another brother named Lazarus. But even so, we really don't know the domestic situation, but it's her house in some way. But is really, the emphasis is that it's yet another example in Luke's gospel of Jesus taking a woman, or really women, plural, seriously as his disciples. So when God said he made humanity male and female together in his image, he really meant it. That his disciples, male and female together, are equals. That he cares equally for both men and women and reaches out to them and teaches them the same. Now, we read in verse 39 that, that Martha's sister Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to his teaching. And we see this exact same thing, for example, with the demon-possessed man of Luke chapter 8, after the legion of demons had been cast out of him. That is, we find him sitting calmly at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. That man, in turn, wanted to follow Jesus wherever he went. He had become a disciple. Same thing here with Mary. She is sitting at the feet of Jesus as a disciple, listening to him, learning from him. And we see a similar posture with the woman in Luke 7, uh, who had believed Jesus and his offer of life and was weeping at his feet. She anointed his feet with oil in worship. So unlike the Pharisee from last week testing Jesus, these were tears of joy for the life she had received from Jesus. Now compare that with Simon the Pharisee, whose house they were in, in Luke chapter 7, who had superficially shown hospitality to Jesus, even as he was actually testing Jesus. But he, he rejected Jesus' kindness and his forgiveness of this woman. In fact, he seems to have found the whole scene repugnant, which by implication meant that Simon himself rejected Jesus' greater hospitality, which is the offer of life in himself. Well, verse 40 tells us that Martha was distracted with much serving. And, and you should ask the question, distracted from what? Well, Jesus himself. She had welcomed the Messiah into her home, but she was too busy serving him and perhaps some of his disciples to actually listen to him. And in her frustration, she says to Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Now keep in mind, this is probably all very much happening in front of people, right? It's not like she lived in a mansion. This is a small home. She probably interrupted his teaching to say this. And in response, Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, 
which will not be taken away from her. So that's a rebuke. Again, this is done in front of a lot of people. So here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying, Martha, hospitality doesn't matter, and worrying about food and dishes is a dumb thing to do. Martha had a house full of guests, right? And dinner was not going to cook itself. And hospitality in the ancient Near East was a far bigger deal deal even than it is here in the Deep South. Even so, I get the impression that while Jesus was teaching, she had chosen instead to busy herself with serving instead of sitting at his feet like her sister was doing. So it's not as though the kind of work that Martha was doing did not matter or was worthless. It absolutely matters, and every household is daily dependent on such work. It's rather that she had busied herself with the works of the kingdom, serving Jesus instead of first, sitting at his feet and listening to him. It's like the movement we see in Luke chapter 4 with Simon Peter's mother-in-law, if you'll remember that story. Jesus was invited into Peter's home. When he enters, he finds that Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a high fever. And Jesus, with a word, heals her, and then in response, she immediately got up and began to serve him. That's the order. You cannot rightly serve God until you have been healed by him. It's just like the order we talked about from a few weeks ago, if you remember that weird sermon on the the ordination of, of Aaron as high priest. The order is ear, hand, foot. Before you can ever serve Jesus with your hands and your feet, you must first receive his kindness and hospitality through your ear. That is, by listening to him and in turn believing him. And this is not something that happens just once in your life, as in, ah, got that message, off we go. No, no, no. Faithful hands and feet are centered on a lifetime of listening to God. When I was doing campus ministry at St. Louis University, it's a Catholic university, I remember encountering and trying to really minister to this one guy, and he said, I do not understand why your group is always doing Bible studies. I read that book once. What more do I need to do? That's the idea of what we not want to be about. That this word is ever new. That you are centered on this word for life. You can read the Bible once and get a tremendous amount out of it. But as I find weekly, there is no end to it. There is no end to its depth and its breadth. We, we are called to have ears continually set on our God, a lifetime of listening to God. And as Jesus says to Martha, the greater portion is to receive from him, as Mary had done, and only then can we rightly serve God well. So the old phrase, it is better to give than to receive, in a lot of ways can be a veiled kind of legalism that keeps us from God. To reverse the order of ear, hand, foot is to make the mistake of the Pharisee. It is to believe that if we serve God well, then he might be hospitable to us. And when we reverse the order of ear, hand, foot, we almost certainly will be superficial in our hand and our foot. Superficial. Because we have made the ear to hear what we want it to hear. And in turn, we ask questions like, who is my neighbor? Or how far is too far? When we focus on our service in the kingdom at the expense of the greater portion of listening and receiving God's hospitality, it looks like the disciples in chapter 9 
arguing amongst themselves. Who is the greatest? Or like Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. I see your works. I know what you do. But you have forgotten your first love. After all, it's entirely possible for a person to keep their wedding vows and have a heart far from her spouse. Again, like the Pharisee in the previous passage, Luke doesn't tell us how Martha responded to Jesus in this somewhat public rebuke, though it is clear from John 11 and 12 that Jesus loved Martha. He loved her and loved Mary and Lazarus, and six days before Jesus was crucified, he was again in Martha's home, and she was serving him. Lazarus, whom had, he had recently been raised from the dead, imagine that, he's, he's there in John 11 reclining with Jesus, and Mary is there anointing Jesus' feet with an expensive ointment, just like the woman from Luke chapter 4. She wiped the excess with her hair. So I think it is clear that both Martha and Mary loved Jesus. It's Judas, in fact, in, in John 12, who, like so many Pharisees before him, rejected Jesus' offer of life. And in turn, Mary's response of worship, he absolutely finds it repugnant. And he, he does so in a kind of self-righteous sort of way. He says, you know, we could have used that per perfume, that ointment, we could have sold it and used the proceeds for the poor. That would have been a better use of that money. And of course, Judas was in charge of the common purse, and he was skimming off the top. So as always the case, a heart that's far from God may advocate for what looks like righteous service. It might even sound compassionate. We could have used this for the poor. But every time, it will reveal itself as self-serving and superficial. Well, in light of this, this short passage, I think if you meditate on it for a while, like I have this week, there are three mistakes, maybe perhaps temptations might be the better word, but at least three mistakes that Christians often make when it comes to Jesus in passages just like this one. And first, as we've already mentioned, an individual and really whole churches will reverse the order of ear, hands, foot, and we will pursue serving God and make little of receiving his hospitality and word and sacrament. Now, there are umpteen versions of this in American churches, and virtually every church in some way probably struggles with this in one way or another, but one such type that is familiar to all of us is the church that appears to be an outwardly vibrant church, a church that, with lots going on, lots, lots going on, even as the hearts of the people are far from God. And the sad irony is that they believe, like Martha, that they are actually serving the kingdom well, and there is no doubt that many people are being helped. After all, Martha wasn't, she's not going around rearranging the furniture. She was actually trying to help people in her own home. And of course, there's nothing inherently wrong with churches that are busy and active and have lots of programs and all that. I'm not saying that. But it's worth asking, would people still go to those kinds of churches if they stripped all of it away and said, listen, for the next six months, all we're going to do is worship. Just come. Worship the Lord. Rest. Have fellowship. Let's just do that. Would they still want to come to the church? Even so, over the last three decades, a different kind of service or work has, has shown up among American Christians, really in my young adult to my adult life, where 
Christians have rejected centering themselves on God and His Word and instead taken on the word of political ideologies in God's name. It's why both progressive Christians and Christians on the far right tend to pursue works of social justice as they see them and make little of showing up to worship or submitting to God's word. Or worse, like the Pharisee, they they wind up interpreting God's word as if he is not really doing anything about the world, and they must do it. So when you reverse the order of ear, hand, foot, your feet and your hands tend to gravitate to something other than God and His Word. And you come to define God's Word by whatever that other word, more than likely an ideology these days, even as you you think you're serving the kingdom of God, just like the Pharisee believed he was serving the kingdom of God. For good reason, over the course of my now 20-something year career, I've watched the children. I saw this in youth ministry. I saw this in college ministry. I've watched the children of political ideologues, both liberal and conservative, reject the faith of their parents. They weren't rejecting the God of the Bible. They were rejecting a works-based righteousness done in Jesus' name in service to a political ideology. Now, the second mistake is that we take Jesus' criticisms of Martha, and before her, really, the Pharisee, as meaning that the law does not matter. Nowhere does Jesus ever say that that sort of thing. Jesus takes the law incredibly seriously, and, and that's certainly not Paul's point, for example, in Romans, when he says we are free from the law. Great! Law doesn't matter. Throw it out. No, the, the gospel does not free us from serving others or pursuing the demands of the law. It it frees us to actually pursue it rightly because the law no longer condemns us and the Spirit is at work in our hearts and our minds. So case in point, I was at an out-of-town varsity boys basketball game at a nameless school on, on Friday night. And the officiating, which had been, I will say it had been pretty good, for the first three games. In this fourth game, I think they were tired, and it was starting to go south. And uh, what's more, even as there were slogans of Christian morality adorning the walls, the school allowed the student body to practically be on the court. And it turned into a pretty hostile environment where students were harassing our, our students. And of course, our players can't say a word back and as my anger boiled over and of course all I wanted was justice and just after justice well the treasure of my heart came through my mouth even as I was on the back row and at some point in the fourth quarter it occurred to me during a timeout how good it is that I am not God or have God-like powers otherwise in my self-righteousness hundreds of people would have died in Birmingham Friday night But then it occurred to me, even as I do not have God-like powers, I do have the Spirit of God within me. And there was nothing in that situation that forced me to scream at referees or unruly fans. I have the freedom and the ability to restrain my tongue. Restraining my tongue will not make me right with God, and it won't prove my goodness. No, because God has already made me right with Him, I am free to be a good neighbor to people who I so easily 
hate, even though I don't know a thing about them. So for those who belong to Christ, the law is actually a good thing. That's what David says. It's why Martha in Luke 10 wrongly serves Christ, but by John 12, she rightly serves him. She rightly serves him, ear and blood. Now, the third and final mistake that has become, I think, common in our times, and, and the lockdowns really freed us more and more to this problem, though it was, it was latent, I think, before this, is that Christians both take God's hospitality lightly, but instead of acting like the Pharisee or like Martha, we will instead do whatever it is that we want to do, even as we call ourselves Christians. And I, I'm currently reading a slate of books right now about the passing on of the faith uh, from generation to generation in preparation for a couple of talks I'm going to give, I think, at the end of, of April. And, and there's, there's one scholar I've been reading, a sociologist, Christian sociologist, named Vern um, Binkson, in his book, Families and Faith, and he argues that within the last 130 years or so, moving from the greatest generation, so that's uh, basically people born 1901 to 1927, to the silent generation, if you've never heard of them, because they're the silent generation, it's 1928 to 1945, to the baby boomers, 46 to 64, to Gen X, that's 1965 to 1980, to the millennials, that's 1981 to 1996, to Gen Z, that's 1997 to 2012, and then to Gen Alpha, so starting completely over, that's 2013 to the present, a common theme that started developing with the silent generation. So that's those who are being born right at the Great Depression and has since been passed on to each generation and grown in intensity over that time is the belief that religion and spirituality are, are primarily individual and private things, things that we decide and define for ourselves. So you can be a Christian without listening to God and His Word, and you can certainly select the parts of the Bible you agree with and leave the rest. You can be a Christian and attend church whenever you like it or when it's convenient or not at all, and you can be spiritual all on, our, all on your own. I mean... We all know church is not a building, right? God is everywhere. So whatever you're feeling, whatever your mood, whatever you want to do, it's fine. Spirituality is between you and God. Now, by changing the terms, a moment's reflection will demonstrate just how dangerous that is, just how bankrupt that is. Tell me what you think about this. Being a father and a husband is an individual and private thing that I decide and define for myself. No one else can tell me how to be a husband and a father, and no one has the right to put obligations on me, and certainly not my wife and children. These are obligations that I choose or leave as I see fit. So I can show up to my kids' games, but I don't have to provide for their basic needs. If I don't want to, if I want to, fine. But if I don't want to, I'm not going to. I don't have to live in the same house with my wife to love her well. I can love her anywhere. We're connected. We vibe together. We, we snap. So I can, I can love her just as well hanging out with my bros or when I subscribe to my favorite OnlyFans accounts. Because we're connected. After all, my marriage is not defined by a piece of paper or a bunch of words said in front of some minister. And my love for my kids is about how I feel about them not by some outdated traditional roles that pin down my freedom, 
And how dare you? How dare you try to limit who I am as a person? Now, the terrifying reality is that even as I am clearly being facetious, there are people in this town whose straight face approach marriage and parenting just like this, both male and female. And this is the temptation we all face with God, too. And even as I think we would all condemn this third temptation, still we are far more tempted by this third mistake than we are of being a Pharisee by a long shot. And the net effect of taking God's hospitality lightly is that in reality we actually reject God's kindness and mercy. He's at the door knocking, and we can't be bothered to get up and answer it. You know, Not because we think we must earn life from Him, but because we think in our prosperity and freedom a prosperity and freedom that comes directly from his hand, we don't really need his kindness unless there's an emergency. And then he's obligated to show up. Otherwise, we're doing fine all on our own. So even as the kingdom of God has come near, like Chorazin or Capernaum, we aren't all that impressed. And I think every church in this county struggles with that. There's not a church I've ever been in ever, that doesn't struggle with that in some sense. So here we are. Think about where we are right now. We are in God's house. This isn't our house. It doesn't belong to us. This is God's house, and he has invited us to commune with him. He has invited us to listen to his word, to confess our sin, to receive his pardon, to receive food from his table, and to enter our week of discipleship with his blessing and presence. To take this lightly is to take God's hospitality lightly. This is his. He's offering it to us. And in turn, it's to take his kindness and his mercy lightly too. So let's war against that. All of us struggle with that. I'm willing to put that on the table. All of us struggle with this. So let us all learn the lesson that Jesus taught through his rebuke of Martha. Let us choose the good portion that he is freely offering us that cannot possibly be taken from us because it comes from him. Let me pray for us as we enter into the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are so kind. You are so hospitable that you've given us everything we could possibly ever need. Thank you for delighting in us as your people, even as we are prone to wander from you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.